We have been in a uh, conversation the last couple of weeks, so looking at the stories that Jesus uses to teach his disciples as he travels from, from Galilee, which is in the northern part of the Holy Land, to Jerusalem, where he will face the cross and then be raised again on Easter. And so we've been looking at these stories, and, and uh, today we're going to look at a couple more. We're going to look at these uh, two parables about lost things. And it's appropriate that they are lost things because these two parables are, are almost lost themselves. They're not lost, but they're often uh, overlooked or, or certainly overshadowed because there is a third parable in these series, the, the parable of the lost son, sometimes called the parable of the prodigal son. And um, I think it is, it is um, if, you, if you are not familiar with that, then I encourage you to uh, read the rest of this chapter because it is a, it is a classic of world literature and uh, even if you're not in high school, you can get credit for reading it. Um, it is, is truly a, a masterpiece. Um, and I, I hesitate to think how many pieces of art or um, you know, uh, paintings or, or uh, poems or songs have been written about that third parable. And because it is so wonderful, um, these first two can be overlooked. And so we're going to look at them today, um, these two parables about lost things. And... Um, See what Jesus has to say there. Um, so let us uh, now uh, open up our scriptures. We begin in chapter 15 uh, in verse 1, and it says, All the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around Jesus to listen to him. Now, uh, for us, we, we might be puzzled by two things in that, in that uh, text. Um, it says the tax collectors and the sinners. So uh, it's interesting to, to realize that there are two categories of bad people um, in, this, in this text. There's the sinners, and then there are the tax collectors. And the tax collectors are so bad, the sinners say, don't you lump them in with us. That, that you know, I'm a bad person. It's true. You know, I, you know I, could, I could tell you stories, but do not call me a tax collector. So the tax collectors and the sinners are gathering around Jesus to listen to him. Now, we are coming at this story from 2,000 years of familiarity with it. So it is, it has informed so much of our understanding about Christianity that, that that doesn't surprise people. That they say, well, of course, you know, what would, what else would Jesus do, right? And, and that shows that we don't really understand the situation. That, that we understand the, the, the history of, uh, or we understand the situation through the history of Christianity. Um, what, what is going on here is that these people are outcasts, they're social outcasts, and they are gathering around Jesus, uh, because, because he wasn't doing what they expected him to do. Everybody else they bumped into, everybody else in their society would have rejected them. They were outcasts, they were, they were the, the lowest of the low, and people did not associate with them. And they had every reason to believe Jesus would do the same thing, but he didn't. Jesus did not reject them. Jesus actually welcomed them and talked to them. Jesus, you know, let his shadow fall on them. Jesus did things that people explicitly tried to avoid in that culture. And when they did, when Jesus did talk to them, they found that they, Jesus had things that they wanted to hear, that Jesus was talking to them in a way that, that made sense of, of the things of God and maybe even their own situations, that they could listen to Jesus um, and, uh, and find that Jesus welcomed them. And um, I think that for, for those of us in the church, we should, we should stop and, and ask ourselves, why is that? Because... Because Jesus was um, 
was approached by people who were social outcasts. And yet in, in the, the church, particularly the church in the West, now this is not as true of the church in other parts of the world, but in, in, uh, Europe and in North America, uh, the church has been in decline for several decades. And we do not have people beating down the doors to listen to Jesus uh, as part of our gatherings. And so that's a question we could ask ourselves. What is it that people saw in Jesus 20 centuries ago that they do not see in his church today? And that's just a question that those of us in the church can can ask ourselves. Why was Jesus different? And what is it that we're supposed to be doing different so that we can be more like Jesus? For whatever reason, whatever those reasons are, those people found that Jesus is likable, that Jesus did not reject them. Jesus did not turn them away and say, get out of here, you you bad person. Instead, Jesus welcomed them. Now, if that's not your experience, if that hasn't been your experience, if you're thinking, when my mom got divorced, that's not the way Christians treated me. Well, the point here is that that was not Jesus. That was that was uh, Christians and not not Jesus, and so if that's not been your experience, then um, then uh, unfortunately the church is filled with people, and people are sometimes like that. But Jesus does not act that way. So um, Jesus doesn't act that way. But in this story, we see there are some people who do, because the next thing we read is that the Pharisees and the legal experts were grumbling, saying, "This man welcomes sinners and eats with them." So who are the Pharisees and the legal experts? Well, the legal experts. Were a um, were people who interpreted the the Jewish law. They they interpreted really all of the the Hebrew scriptures, but in particular the first five books of the the Hebrew scriptures, which were called the law. So they they would tell you you know what sacrifices were necessary for what things. So that was that was who the legal experts were, and they were a hereditary um, guild. So it wasn't just anybody who could be a legal expert. The Pharisees are amateurs. They aren't part of that guild, but they basically want to want to interpret the law correctly and they want to put it into practice in their own life. And they're looking at Jesus and saying, I, I you know, I lost count of how many laws Jesus broke, how many rules that we have that Jesus broke when he welcomed sinners and eat with ate with them. So why did they do that? Well, there are some there are some laws that that might have pertained. Maybe they were thinking about some of the laws about ritual impurity. There were things that that um, you know this may sound like a, a schoolyard and little kids talking about cooties, but there there were things you could you could get uh, if somebody was ritually unclean. They had been in contact with a body, a dead body or something. Um, if they had different diseases, then they would be ritually unclean. Unclean. That doesn't mean they're a sinner, but it does mean that they are not able to go to the temple and things like that. So they're ritually unclean, and you could actually catch that if you shook hands with them or or shared a dish with them. Then you could you could become ritually unclean. And so there's probably a little bit of of um, of a real. Uh, analysis saying, yeah, you know, you've got to be careful when you hang out with people like that. But I think a lot of it is simply a sense of um, moral superiority, this smugness that comes from knowing I, you know, I don't drink and I don't chew and I don't go with boys who do. You know, that's this kind of idea of I'm 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 better than they are. And so I think there was some of that. Um, and and the in another in another part of the the New Testament, Jesus deals with that part directly. He he um, is somebody is brought to him who is a sinner, a, a woman who has been caught in adultery is brought before him, and Jesus says 
to the people ready to stone her, he says, let the one of you without sin cast the first stone. Jesus gets right at that smug superiority and says, wait a minute, who's going to go first? But he doesn't do that here. Instead, he tells this parable, this set of parables. And, and, and because of that, we can imagine that these Pharisees and legal experts are thinking, what's the problem? Why, why, what, why would Jesus possibly hang out with people like that? People who are not as good as me. People who, who may be ritually unclean because of the people they've had contact with. So they may be thinking, God shuns people like that. Doesn't God shun people like that? And Jesus, Jesus is expecting maybe better of them, that these are legal experts, they're Pharisees, they know their scriptures, they know the whole story of Israel is one really of people who have, who have rebelled against God and God has continued to be in a relationship with them. Most famously for them would have been the story of the Exodus, the, where God leads them out of, out of slavery in Egypt and then they go to the, the wilderness and immediately begin following every one of God's commands to the letter. Except they don't. They don't. Instead, they, they, they rebel against God at every moment. They're saying, you know, oh Moses, you let us out into the wilderness so you could kill us. We liked it better back when we were slaves in Egypt. That they, they grumble against God. They don't trust God. They want to go back where they're more comfortable. They, they build a golden calf and start dancing around it. You know, these are not people who, who have been faithful all through their life. But what did God do? God, continued to be in relationship with him for 40 years in the wilderness. God led them through the wilderness. God provided for all their needs. He he gave them quail to eat and manna in the wilderness. God uh, gave water from the rock. God continued to be in relationship with them. So so why don't they see that? Why don't they see that, that God does not shun rebels? God does not shun people who sin um, who fail to do what God calls them to do. Well, the reason is because um, everyone has 20-20 blind spots. They think they're better than they are, and they think that God is is not as good as God really is. They think that God would look at people and say, yeah, but that's different. You know, sure, I, I continue to be in a relationship with Israel. I, you know, when they were when they were taken off into exile in Babylon, I continue to be in a relationship with them, but that's different. These sins, these people that Jesus is eating with, they're different from the sins of my ancestors. They're saying these are different because they have a blind spot. And I think if Jesus, if, if they had said that out loud, and they may have, but Jesus, it's not recorded here, um, what their grumbling actually was. Jesus might have responded to them by saying, really, you're focused too much on the nature, the, the particular sin. You're saying, our sin is different, our sin is better, my ancestor's sin is different, that it's a better kind of sin, so of course God could overlook that. Jesus is saying, no, you're seeing it the wrong way. You're focused on on the sin. What you should be focused on is the person, and the person is lost. The person has become lost. Somehow or another, they've gotten turned around. They've they've gotten off the right track. They've found themselves, you know, they were driving down the road, and then suddenly they took a wrong turn, and now they're stuck in the ditch. They're lost. They don't know where they are. They're turned around. Jesus says, that is the problem. And so he uses these two illustrations. Um, he he begins. He he talks about um, if someone. Our translation says someone. Though the, it's probably because of the structure of the story, it's probably a man. If a man um, 
has 100 sheep and lost one of them. And if a woman uh, had 10 silver coins and she lost one. So he tells these stories. Uh, people can understand, okay, yes, if I had sheep, if I had 10 coins, I can relate to that. And he says, wouldn't the man, wouldn't the, the shepherd go, he would put the 99 in kind of a safe place and then go search for the lost one until he found it. And wouldn't the woman light a lamp and sweep the house, searching her home carefully until she finds it? He says, they're lost. The reason that they go, that, 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 um, that the, the person, the, the man, the, the woman, the reason they go looking for these things is because they have value. That, yes, they're lost. I, I can't put it, put my hands on it right this minute, but it has value. And so Jesus says, God is the same way. Jesus says ultimately that God sees everybody. God, God doesn't have any doubts about what's going on in the world. God knows exactly where everything is. But God looks for lost people. God actually cares enough about lost people, knows that they have value, that he looks for them. And the reason he does that is because being lost is not okay. One of the problems that, you know, Jesus, Jesus never says it's okay to be a corrupt tax collector. He never says it's okay to um, engage in whatever kind of sin these people were were um, uh, engaged in, some kind of um, uh, characteristic and habitual uh, rebellion against God, whatever that might have been. Um, uh, he's not saying, well, that's okay then. He's not winking at them and saying, oh, don't worry about it. You know, that's not a big deal. They are lost. Jesus says these people are lost, and they have to be found. And I think this is something where the church sometimes gets it wrong. I think the church uh, is is either in the situation of of not caring if we're likable the way Jesus was, or wanting so much to be likable that we do exactly what Jesus did. And we wink at people. We say, well, "Don't worry about that. That's not a big deal." You know, you know that. I, you know, I'm not even sure if that's against the rules anymore. You know, we 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 have that perspective. We sometimes um, overcorrect. Martin Luther, the, the Protestant reformer 500 years ago, he said that Christians are kind of like a, a, a drunken person trying to ride a horse. They fall off on one side, and then they get back up on the horse, and they fall off on the other side. And I think sometimes Christians can do that. We're so eager to be, to be not like those unlikable Christians that we overcorrect, that we say, oh, it's okay to be lost. It's, you know, really, it's no skin off my nose if you're lost. I just want to let you know you know, Jesus loves you or whatever. We, we, we are in a situation where we, we focus on symptoms. We, we talk about homelessness or about, um, about, uh, uh, other social ills. We, we think about social ills and we, we come up with programs and ministries to help people in those situations, but we only look at the symptoms. We never say, this person has a deeper problem. This person is lost. We just hope somehow that by our efforts, to be likable, to to address the symptom, that somehow, somewhere in there, they will realize that they are lost. So, Jesus, unlike the church, doesn't patronize God's lost children. Jesus says, yeah, you are lost. And people loved him anyway. The tax gatherers and the sinners, they gathered around Jesus, even though he said, you're lost. Jesus says about about these people, he, he says, um, in the same way I tell you, there'll be more joy in heaven 
There'll be more joy breaks out in the presence of God's angels. Jesus says there's a party in heaven. Why? What happens that causes the party? What is it that actually brings about the party in heaven? And he says it's over one sinner. Use the same language both times. One sinner who changes both heart and lives, life. So what does he mean by that? Uh, the, the, the word that they're trying to translate is, is the word for repent. And I'm glad that this is a good translation uh, because they've actually teased it out a little bit. The problem with repent is it's a church word. Nobody ever says, you know, I was, um, uh, I, I got a D on my, um, uh, uh, homework because I thought that the American Revolution was in 1812. You know, so I need to repent of that. Nobody ever says, I need to repent of, you know, the way I do my calculus problems. Um, you know, we don't repent. Uh, we don't use repent except in the very narrow circumstances of church world. And so they've tried to use words that people actually understand, change bo- both heart and lives. And um, this is a good translation. Uh, the, the, the Greek word for repent actually means literally, it means to change your mind, to rethink things. To, to come up with a new way of thinking about something. But I really like the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word for repent is even better because it means to turn around. And that's really the point here. Because when you say change both heart and life, what I think a lot of us do is we say, well, I'll wait to see when the life gets changed. You know, I don't care about the heart. You know, show me. You know, let's see, let's run the, let's run the clock forward a little bit and see where this turns out. I know that person. You know, he's, I know someone just like that person, and I'm not convinced that they have in fact changed. So we say, we say, you know, I want to see more of that life. But the Hebrew word, um, and and even more the Greek word, they they aren't focused on the results. They're saying, as soon as you turn around, if you are traveling in this direction and it's the wrong way to go, then what really matters is you turn around. How soon you arrive at your destination is a separate problem. If you turn around, if you quit going in the wrong direction, you will eventually get to your destination. That's the important thing. And so change your heart in life means change your heart and put your life on the right trajectory. And we'll see how fast that changes. So to repent means to turn, not to arrive. And that's something that those of us who turned a little bit earlier should keep in mind because, you know, who, who among us can say, okay, I've arrived now. I am exactly like Jesus in every way. So it means to turn, not to arrive. And it is at this moment, it is at this point when someone turns, when, when the sinner turns, that the party breaks out in heaven. Jesus says in the same way, there'll be more joy in heaven. There'll be joy breaking out in the presence of God's angels. Who, in whose presence are the God, are, are God's angels? God. He's saying God throws a party in heaven. At that moment, he begins celebrating. He doesn't wait. He doesn't say, let's see what happens. God begins celebrating immediately. And Jesus came to that party. Jesus saw the tax collectors and the sinners. And they were intrigued enough to come listen to him. And Jesus said, there's a party going on in heaven right now. I want to go to that party. So Jesus comes to the party and he invites the church to come to that party too. But it's not our party. It's not our party, except in the sense that each of us had that party at some point. It's not our party. We're not the mater d. We don't enforce a dress code at the door. We're certainly not bouncers. It's not our party. We are simply guests at God's party.
So Jesus says, that's why I eat with tax collectors and sinners. So, what do we do with this? What should we do with this lesson? Uh, Sorry, the church is invited to God's party. So what should we do with this? Well, the first thing we should do is we should ask ourselves, honestly, what are the parts of my life where I'm off track, where I've gotten lost, where I'm turned around, where I'm not facing in the right direction? We need to ask that question honestly and help uh, let ask God to show us those places in our lives where we are, in fact, lost. What part of my life am I lost? What Are, are there parts of my life where I'm still lost? So that's the easy one. The harder one is this. Imagine someone. Did you have difficulty imagining Jesus having dinner with? Now, you know, it could be, you know, an easy person, you know, Vladimir Putin or Kim Jong-un, some terrible person, where you say, I have trouble imagining Jesus having dinner with him. But it's better if it's someone you actually know. Um, and, and, you know, not a class of people, not, you know, the homeless or bank robbers, but ideally some, some people you know or have met in the past, people that you can actually think, man, I can't imagine Jesus having dinner with that person. And then ask God, let me, let me see them the way you do. Let me see them not as terrible people, but as lost people. And then, be ready in case God says, here's what I want you to do because I'm trying to find them. And you have a role. Envision that person. And I think for a lot of us, we know exactly who that person is. It came to mind immediately. Say, Help me see them not as a terrible person, but as a lost person. And then, God, where, where, after that, I'm yours to command. Show me what I should do next. Jesus doesn't see tax collectors and sinners. Jesus sees lost sheep, lost coins, and as the story goes on, lost sons. Let's pray. Gracious God, Your son um, was a friend of sinners, which is good news for each of us because none of us are without sin. Lord, help us to see the places in our lives where we are lost, however big, however many they are, confident that when we turn around, you will begin leading us home. Lord, help us to do the same thing for other people, people we know, people we have despaired of, people we have contempt for, people we hate. Help us to see them, Lord, not as sinners or tax collectors. Help us to see them the way Jesus does, as people who are valuable and people who are lost. We ask these things in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. In a few moments, we are going to um, we're going to dine like Jesus does with um, sinners and tax collectors, and so I invite you uh, as we sing our communion song to uh, to prepare your hearts to receive the gift that Jesus offers from this table.